You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn Church, J-Town. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. It's great to be back with you. And honestly, I think this is the first time I've been in the building since uh, March. And so it's, it's great to be back and have the opportunity to be back. Some assembly required. You ever bought anything or received anything with that sign on it or that message on it? Well, yeah, of course you have. Now, I usually look at that as more a warning than a message, right? Some assembly, like I, I can think of many Christmas Eves where some assembly required meant, you know, somewhere around 3 or 4 a.m., finally, the assembly was done. So, this week, and I'll tell you in a minute why I'm using that, why I'm using that sort of as kind of like a title for my sermon. This week, I spent some time Googling things like partially assembly, partially assembled or some assembly required just to see, you know, read about people's experiences with these things. And also to see sort of some of the promises that, that companies make about sort of some assembly required. Well, I can tell you this. The most common word that popped up the whole time was Ikea. Nothing popped up more than Ikea. And then to read the comments, right? I mean, I'm, I just spent way too much time reading the com- comments. But it was, now it was, uh, to, to be fair to Ikea, it was really clear that a lot of the comments were based, that a lot of the problems in the comments were not because some assembly was required. It was because the people doing it were really not capable of any assembly, right? So people were like, the screws don't fit. I can't, get, I can't get it right down the hole. So I even tried to hammer it in. Now I've hammered it in. It's too far in. I've had people helping me. I've been at this for three hours. I'm taking it back. And all kinds of things like this. And then my favorite, though, my favorite is uh, an online bike store that promises that their partially assembled bikes can be fully assembled by a 12-year-old. And there's even a video of, this, of a 12-year-old putting this bike together. Now, from reading lots of the comments, apparently 12-year-old, 12 years old is like the max age. And if you're beyond that, forget it. And it just seems like there's maybe just not enough 12-year-olds around to put these bikes together because people well over 12 are having all this problem because it's some assembly required. So why am I talking about this? The reason I am is because there is a, a verse. Actually, it's not even a whole verse. There's actually a, there's a verse in this text that we're looking at today that we talk about sometimes, and the way we talk about it is kind of like some assembly required. And it's this little phrase, work out your salvation <clears throat> with fear and trembling. We kind of take a some assembly required um, take on that phrase. But it's the part that sticks out, right? So work out your salvation and then the, right, the terrifying part with fear and trembling. That's one of those verses that lots of Christians know, 
right? You just know it, right? Even if you're not, even if, you're, even if you don't know where it is exactly, even if you couldn't say that's Philippians 2, it's just one of those verses we know. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I think if you ask a lot of people, hey, okay, so you know that verse, can you, do you remember anything else around that verse? I mean, I think, I think a lot of people would probably say, because it's God that works in you both, something, something, right? But the thing we remember is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the part that sticks out with us. Now, I've heard it said more than once in relation to this verse, like let's say somebody's preaching or teaching this verse. I've heard people say something like this, if not these exact words, and that is, you've got to work in what, you've got to work out what God works in. Or what God works in, you've got to work that out. The problem with that, well, actually, let me put it this way. There's only one problem with sort of describing this verse in that way, and that is, it's totally off base. That's the only problem with saying, the only problem with saying, you've got to work out what God works in you, is that it's absolutely off the mark. Other than that, it's fine. Right? So with, besides that one little thing. But the idea, I mean, I get, I, get what's, I get what people are trying to say. But the idea that what Paul is saying here is, you've got to add your work to what God is working in you in salvation, to think of it in terms of an add-on or that salvation is some assembly required is absolutely not a biblical way to look at salvation. When it comes to salvation, it is, quite honestly for us, no assembly required. Or you could put it this way. It's all assembly required, and God does the building from beginning to end. That's, that'd be another way of looking at it. Because I can promise you that what Paul is not saying here is that God kind of gets the thing going, and then he comes and says, all right, I've started this. I mean, I've got you off the ground, kind of giving you like, you know, the user, user manual, Now let's see what you got. Now, there's none of us who really think God is like that, but there's lots of us who sort of act like God is like that. In other words, we have this view that what God does is He saves us, and then we make all these great confessions that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, and we believe it, and and we confess it, But then we do have this view that God does all these things and then says something to us like, now work out your salvation. And then then he's sitting there just looking at us thinking, all right, I've done my bit. I dare you to mess up. Or the second you do, I'm going to be all over you so fast, it'll make your head spin. Because we sort of, we just have a tendency, I think, to read texts like this and to, see it as, and to see it as sort of a threat. I'll come back to that in a minute. But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to salvation, we cannot think of God as somehow different than the God who saves us by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. We can't then sort of flip the script on that when it comes to living 
as Christians and think that somehow now God relates to us differently, or somehow the same God who knew we could do nothing to save ourselves now comes and says, all right, it's up to you now. Now, again, I don't know many people who actually would say it that way, but I mean practically day in, day out, day in, day out, we kind of do live that way. And so as we're, as, we're coming, as we're coming to this text, let me just say right off the bat, this command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, comes hardwired with a promise that is, does not rest on you. And we've seen it already in Philippians, Philippians 1.6. I'm sure when Paul gets to Philippians, what we call Philippians 2, he hadn't forgotten where he began this book, and that is Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the promise that underlies the command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, and I, I mean, Paul didn't sort of hold one thing out early in the letter and say, hey, I'm confident God's going to do this and say, not so fast. Here's the fine print. Here's where you got to kick in your bit. And if that's not enough, if that's not enough, even the command in chapter 2 restates the promise in this way, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because, because it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Right? So it's surrounded. This command is surrounded by these promises. So, number one, it comes with a promise. Number two, that promise is restated, and we have to begin there. So the first step in figuring out what does this mean in my life has to begin with believing that God, everything that God begins in you, He Himself guarantees He's going to finish it. He's going to finish it. Not like in some sort of partnership, but He's going to do it. And secondly is believing that whatever work out your salvation with fear and trembling means, and we'll talk about that in a minute, whatever that means, it is upheld by this statement because it's God who is working in you. So, as we look at this text, we're just going to look at three things. I'm going to be really pretty brief this morning. The three things are this. One, you are God's work from first to last. From first to last, God is the builder. And He calls us to live that out. So, work out, I don't mean, I don't think means like add on to or you know, you just got to sort of work it out and figure it out. I think work out your salvation means live it out. And I'll, we'll come back to that in a second. That's, and then the second thing is that, uh, th sorry, the second thing is this. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and the result is you'll be content and peaceful, not grumbling and complaining. That's what, in other words, that's what it looks like. And then third, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and you will be free to live with joy and gratitude. So there's not 
three commands in this, in this text. There's not work out your salvation, don't grumble, be thankful. There's one command with a promise that God is going to fulfill it. There's one command and then two things that flow from it, right? So Paul's great. Paul never just says, hey, go do this, now figure out what I mean. He always says, do this, and then says, here's what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm talking about. So as we come to this very first thing, and that is you are God's work from first to last, and what he's doing is he's calling you to live out that salvation that he's given you. Paul is still talking about what he's been talking about since chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He hasn't, he hasn't given up on that. And we've, we've, everybody who's preached since the beginning of chapter 2, 1 through 4, has come back to that every time to read those sort of first four verses again and again, because Paul is still after that. He hasn't let this idea go. This is, this is how he's working it out. So chapter 2, 1 to 4 is, is really one of the, it's like the key to understanding what work out your salvation means. If there's in, this is, this is one through four. If there's any encouragement in Jesus, or sorry, in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent in one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Paul hasn't let that go. And as we saw last week, right, he then moves on to show how that's made possible and the greatest example of, of, of all in Jesus who gave up and didn't exploit his own power and position and gave himself up and became obedient and a servant and even unto death on the cross and conquered the grave and now is ruling and reigning as king. And, Paul, and then right on the heels of that is when Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Live it out. And so, <clears throat> working out means living it out. But it is living it out in such a way that reflects what that salvation is. And what that salvation is in this context in Philippians is, what it looks like is living for others. Putting others ahead of yourself. So Paul's not talking about every single aspect of everything that we might ever say about living the Christian life. He's talking about this most essential thing, and that is the Christian life is essentially this. It is not living for ourselves, but for others. When God saves us, He frees us. He frees us from the sort of bondage that we have of living only for ourselves and living only for our own interests, and turns us outside of ourselves towards others in exactly the same way Jesus came, completely acting, living, and dying, and rising for others. And so the call to work out your salvation is a call, we should, and we should hear it as a call, not as a, you better do this, or I'm going to get you. 
But we need to hear it as a call from, from, from God through the Apostle Paul for our lives to reflect Jesus and God's intention in us and what God intends to do in us and through us. So, but we do have to deal with the fear and trembling part, right? We can't just act like, well, you know, it doesn't really mean what it sounds like. I know it says fear and trembling, but it's not really. So we do, we do have to deal with it, and we should, because this idea of the fear of the Lord, this is a, it's a big topic throughout the whole entire Bible. And there's a lot of things to say, but I'm not going to try to say them all. I'm going to try to cut to the chase. And what I'm going to do is, first of all, say three things that fear and trembling in this text is not. So three things it is not. One, it is not living as though God is out to get you or that he's suspicious of you, right? That he's, of course, he's, he's all-knowing and all-powerful. He's like, I know you're going to mess up. I'm just waiting. I even know when you're going to mess up. So I'm not really waiting. I'm just, I just, it's going to happen. And the minute it does, I can't wait to just jump all over you and show you who you're messing with here. That's not the fear and trembling that Paul has in mind. Unless the God who saves us is not the same God who promises to fulfill and complete the work that he started. But that's practically, though, sometimes how we act, right? Practically, sometimes how we act is, yeah, we, we talk about God who saves us in Jesus in one way, but then when we go about living the Christian life, we sort of then think about God as like some sort of like principle who like welcomes all the kids on day one. And then from then on always has like a just face where they, you can just see it in the face that I know you're going to mess up and I'm going to be there when you do. But that's not what fear and trembling is. Number two, fear and trembling does not mean that God is threatening you. Number three, here's an illustration. Fear and trembling is not like the fear that Adam and Eve felt when they sinned. You might, you, I'm sure you know the story. They ate, right? Every day they communed with God. They ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to. They ate from the tree they weren't supposed to. God comes like he does and they hide. And God says, why are you hiding? And Adam says, because we're afraid. That is not the fear that is in view of this text where you're like cowering or shrinking back from God. What it is, is living with the reality that the one who is working in you, the one who is taking your life and reshaping it and remolding it in the way it is meant to be is the God who created the entire universe, the God who is sovereign over everything, right? The God who, when he shows up in the Bible, people don't sort of run up with like fist bumps and bro hugs. What do they do? They fall down before him. Thomas, when he recognizes who Jesus is, does what? He falls before him and says, my Lord and my God. Right? So that's the sort of fear and trembling that's being talked about here is we are dealing with, better to say this, 
the one dealing with us is the all-sovereign and all-powerful God who loves us in Christ, but is the all-powerful and all-sovereign God. Secondly, the fear and trembling, I think, is also an acknowledgement and confession of our own inability to work out our salvation left to ourselves. Right? Because acknowledging who God is, <clears throat> we can't fully acknowledge who God is until we also acknowledge what we are not, and that is we're not Him. And that left to ourselves, the last thing we're going to do is work out our, our salvation. So if you think about it that way, it is, it is even a call to repent and confess, I can't work out my salvation. I can't do it. And then what does God say? I started a good work in you, and I will complete it until the end to the day of Jesus Christ. I have told you this. So it's a confession. And then third, it is the reality of children living out their lives before their heavenly Father. Verse 15, he says, like the children of God, that you are, right? And God has this relationship with us where He is our Father. And just like, an, just like a father has authority over children, and just like the way that children understand the authority their father has over them, and I mean a good father. I don't mean, you know, sort of like a tyrannical father, but a child understands the difference and the dynamic of a, their relationship to their father. And that's the sort of thing, so this, that's the sort of thing that's going on here too, that God is our father. And so those are the three things I think that it is. Now, rather than thinking about fear and trembling as terror and anxiety, that God's just waiting for you to mess up, I think it's an invitation for us to put our years and our months and our days and all those things kind of blend together in the past couple of months. But to put all of our moments in relation to God and who He is and His salvation of us in Jesus Christ. So, for instance, so the next time, the next time you're in a situation where you could either stand up for yourself and show that you're right and make a point and show somebody who's boss and win or defer to somebody else and think, there's nothing in this for me to win. I'm not winning anything. That's when we think about living out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? Because we do have to remember, we, have to do rem we do have to remember that living out our salvation can never include working against God's purpose, right? So when we are working against God's purpose, when we're working against others, when we're just trying to show our authority, when we're just trying to make a point, when we're just trying to win in a situation, when we're just trying to, you know, again, just let others know who, who's boss. If we're trying to manipulate and frighten other people, or if other people need our time and they need our resources, or they just need someone to listen, but we can't sort of stop because we have our own things to do, and I can't really be bothered with that right now, then we are actually not working in relation to or with 
or along the lines and along the lines of the way God is meant for us to be working, the way He's working in us. So again, how do you do this? How do you, how do you work out your salvation, live it out? You do it by living for others, by giving of yourself and your time and your resources to other people, recalling that the one calling you to do this is the God of the universe who loved you and gave His Son for you. And if we do that, two things kind of come as a result. Number one, or no, sorry, this is really the second point, right? So the second point, the first thing that comes from the command, work out your salvation, is you can be content and peaceful. Now, I say content and peaceful because Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing, So you're free. You're free rather than to grumble and argue is to be content and peaceful. And then he says, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. So notice what Paul says. He says, so that you will be blameless and pure. He does not say, if you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it will make you blameless and pure. There's a difference. He's saying, if you live like, if you live out your salvation, if you live out your salvation, it will make you, it will, sorry, then you will be, that's that's the opposite of what I said, then you will be blameless and pure. There will be nothing against you. But he doesn't say, if you do these things, then that's going to make you blameless and pure because your starting point with God is he looks at you as blameless and pure. Otherwise, the sacrifice of Jesus did nothing for us. God looks at you already as blameless and pure, and here he's calling us to reflect that blamelessness so that then we are also blameless and pure, what? In the world among whom we shine like stars. Now, he does say, he does say, and we need to talk about this, he does say this crooked and perverted generation. Now, it's really, the, the word, the second word is difficult for us. Now, what Paul is not saying is among those perverts, the way we would typically use that word. It's like when Jesus says crooked and faithless generation. The idea here is not just sort of pointing out the general kind of social or moral failings of society in general ways. It's a more specific thing than that. It's even a more pointed thing than that. It is the ways in which the world shows itself to be sort of twisted and deformed versions of God's intention for the world. So, in other words, it's, it's crooked and perverted away from something, not just randomly out there. It's specifically from something, and the thing that it's, the thing that it's sort of crooked from, the thing that it's twisted away from, is God's intention for the human race. And that's the world in which we're meant to shine like stars, holding forth the gospel, which means, of course, believing and confessing, but it's not just believing and confessing here. 
It is holding it out. So holding firm the word of life is not simply holding it in yourself, which you do. It is putting it out there, holding it out there for the world to see and shining it in a dark world like stars in the sky. Which means which means living out our Christian lives, not just merely reflecting sort of social commentary that might sort of overlap a little bit politically with what we're like, that, but, then, but then sounds no different than just any sort of commentary. It is a specific way of living in the world where we are showing Jesus to the world by, giving, by the giving of ourselves and our time and our resources and our ears to listen. And we need to be careful that we don't just sort of fall into the trap of making social commentary that could be made by anybody who maybe shares your sort of political background, whether they're Christian or not. But, you know, like right now we have this amazing opportunity to show the world what it means to be followers of Jesus and and we do need to sort of we do need to do we do need to make sure that we get beyond just pointing out I'm not like those Christians that you've seen I'm not like them I'm different I mean I get that I understand the desire to do that but the idea is to actually show Jesus to the world I was running yesterday and I ran by a sign in a yard that said we believe and I was like oh that gets my attention so I slowed down which slowing down is relative right so I was I slowed down more than my normal slow pace. And I stopped and looked at the sign, and there were several things listed. It was very colorful. That's what got my, that's what got my attention. And there were was, there was some things on there absolutely I affirmed. There were some other things on there, and I thought, oh, see, this is a statement of, like, faith. This is like this person's version of, like, the Apostles' Creed or something. And as I looked at it, and, you know, this text was on my mind. I thought, yeah, there's some things on there I absolutely, 100%, without qualification, affirm. But as I looked at it as a whole, I thought, you see, you see what this is? This, is? this is their version of God's intention for the world. So I could look at that and be like, oh, and really indignant about some of them. Or I could look at that to attempt to anyway, I can attempt to look at that and think that is what I'm looking at is a distortion of what God has for this world, of what God intends and what God intends to do in this world and what He is doing in us. And so as we think about what it looks like to live as Christians, it's just the simple sort of picture, light, in the world, shining in the darkness, knowing that ultimately the darkness cannot overcome it. And that gets to the final point. With this, I'll close. Paul ends with the second thing, you, second thing that happens after living, as you live your life out, and that is you can live with thanksgiving and joy. Paul ends by saying, hey, even if my whole life is poured out like a sacrifice on the altar, I give thanks. And you know what? You should too. So therefore, so therefore rejoice and give thanks with me. About what? 
well, my life might get poured out in sacrifice on the altar. Now, they love, think about this for a moment. We read this and we're like, yeah, okay, Paul, he's always talking that way. But they love Paul and he loves them. And he's saying, hey, look, if my life, if I lose my life for your sake and for the gospel, I rejoice and you should too. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, it's easy to get to the end of this text and be like, oh yeah, thankful, great. But then look about it and look at, look at it and think about what he's really saying. Here is what it looks like to live out your salvation that you can give thanks and rejoice. How can they give thanks and rejoice if Paul loses his life? How can they give thanks and rejoice if they end up sharing the same fate as Paul? How? Because they know that God is at work in them both to will and to work according to his good pleasure, not according to their present circumstances or Paul's present circumstances. That the present circumstances are not what affects or shapes or changes or diverts God's plan to complete the work that he started in us. And that's why we can give thanks and rejoice. So if things are going off the rails in your life, you're not like, man, I'm so thankful that my life is worse than at any time I've ever remembered it. That, this, this is great. My only regret is it's not worse than it is today. And then I would be super thankful. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is, no matter your circumstances, and this is where you have to start and end with faith. And with this, I'll close. If we don't believe that God is truly at work in us, if we don't believe that God is good at keeping His Word, that He will complete and finish what He began all the way to the day of the return of Jesus, if we don't believe that, then we can't live with joy and contentment and peace and gratitude and thanksgiving. But if we can begin and end with faith thinking, you know what? It's not the circumstances around me. It's not the things going on around me that confirm or deny. What it is is God's promise that confirms that no matter what, no matter how dark the world is, no matter what I'm experiencing, no matter what my friends are experiencing, it doesn't mean, I'm, I det- it doesn't mean we detach from it, that we become like, like we don't care about it anymore. We just sort of live our lives and float through it. No, it means that in the midst of of a crooked and twisted and distorted world that we live in, and in the midst of our own issues and our own failings and all the things that happen to us, we can live and rejoice. Why? Not because pain is great, but because the God who saved us in Jesus, who calls us to live and be free to live for one another, promises that He will complete His work hundred percent. He will finish what he started, 100 percent, all the way to the day of the return of Jesus Christ. That work of rebuilding us, that work of all assembly required with God being the builder, began in the life and ministry of Jesus and hit a climax on the night that Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest followers, And on that night, he took a piece of bread. He took a loaf of bread before the disciples, and he broke it in half and said, this is my body, 
that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup, a cup of wine, and he said, this is the blood, this is my blood that is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it was on that Roman execution stake. It was on the cross that God's plan of rebuilding began. And if that's where God began, if God began this plan of rebuilding from the bottom up, rebuilding us, and he was starting with the death of his beloved son, that guarantees that he's going to see it through to the end. So as we come to take, the, come to take the, uh, communion together, you'll find, uh, a, you'll find a sort of individual um, portion, I guess it is, <laughs> right there in front of you. And if you're, if you're taking part at home, I just, would, I just would say to you before we take communion, come to this and receive it as it is. And that is a gift. It's not, a, it's not a pledge from you to God that you're going to do better this week. It's not a pledge from you to God that I'm really going to work my salvation. It is a receiving, on your part, receiving from God who gives fully and without finding fault in Jesus. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.